This podcast was recorded before the global pandemic. While the world looks a lot different today, we believe this content remains valuable for helping organizations move forward and emerge stronger. I've always wanted to write a news article about how many algorithms impact my day-to-day life. 10, 100, 1,000? My fascination with how technology is changing my day and changing the world of work is why I'm very happy to have the following two guests on the Workday podcast today. Ajay Agrawal, Professor of Innovation and Strategic Management at the University of Toronto. He's also the co-author of Prediction Machines, The Simple Economics of Artificial Intelligence. Cheyenne Chakraborty is the Senior VP of Tools and Technology here at Workday, where he and his team have played a key part in weaving ML into the very fabric of our underlying platform. I'm Josh Christ. I've had separate, extremely informative conversations with both of these guests, but I'm very excited that they had the time to come on the show together. Thank you, gentlemen. Thanks, Josh. I have a question to, to lead us off. It's been 18 months since the publication of Prediction Machines, and I think I bought it the day it came out. And in some sense, it's a really short time from then to now. But in the area of AI and ML, it's a really long time. Looking back on the last 18 months, are there things that you wish you'd elaborated on more or had delved in more deeply in the book? Yeah, there are a number of things that uh, we've learned, even though 18 months on some timescales is a short time. In this field, it feels like a very long time. If I was to pick one of the things, probably the most salient, it's that we underestimated the impact on power. So prediction machines was largely about what happens as the cost of prediction falls. Mm -hmm. And the part that I think we underestimated was when the cost of prediction falls, it can affect not just the way we do particular tasks, but it can affect the distribution of power. And we are starting to see that now in terms of some organizations and some countries beginning to get ahead of others in a way that it seems like it may be hard for others to subsequently catch up because prediction in some cases confers power, the ability to predict. And furthermore, because of the way AIs work, that they learn. And so an organization is able to deliver better prediction will attract more users, more users generate more data, more generate generates better predictions. Once that flywheel starts to turn, that we had underestimated in prediction machines the impact of prediction on power. Yeah, so the rich get richer in some sense. And really, we, we end up in a situation that feels like we have haves and have-nots potentially. I think it can go both ways in the sense that if we take an example like the AIs that run search, that on the one hand, we used to have power distributed evenly across the country from coast to coast in terms of information curation. And we call them those centers of power libraries. So when we wanted information, we would go to our library and there'd be people that were skilled in library science and librarians and every town had a library or several. Now everyone's information is curated by one of two companies. Majority is one in Mountain View, California. And so on the one hand, there's been an incredible concentration of power. All that power that used to be distributed across all these libraries is now sitting in one organization. On the other hand, 
the access to information has been democratized in a way that is much more evenly distributed than before. In lower-income countries or lower-income neighborhoods that had less access to well-funded libraries, uh, now that access is much more broadly distributed. So on the one hand, the power is really concentrated in terms of the control, but in terms of access, it's very distributed. Right. So it's almost two kind of opposing forces. You've got this level where the general expertise or the knowledge available to the average person is so much higher than they would have had in the past. And on the other hand, probably since the first time since the Library of Alexandria, we have a sudden concentration of knowledge in a handful of locations. Yeah, the curation of knowledge. So in other words, if you and I uh, want to search on what are all the different ways people are using Workday, we would most likely go to Google and search that, and we would get a bunch of results of how different people are using the product. And so they curate that information. And I think that seemed very benign in the past. We're seeing now, as people are taking more notice of the power that comes with that kind of information, that in the U.S. is the Department of Justice. In Europe, it's the European Commission for Antitrust. People are starting to worry about that. And effectively that power is distributed more or less across two countries now. U.S. and China have each have, uh, through Baidu and Google and Microsoft Bing, have a real concentration of curating that information. And I know you said there were three things that you were wanting to update or wanting to speak to. What were those other? So another one is the relationship between prediction and judgment. In the book, we spent a fair amount of time, and the, and the basic idea is that prediction is what the AIs do, and judgment is what the humans do. And as we've watched systems evolve and taken many questions from readers about judgment, a question that often comes up is, how stable is human judgment? In other words, when AIs get enough examples of watching humans exercise their judgment, then eventually, when they get enough examples, can they just predict judgment? And so the answer to that in many cases is yes. And so in some sense, judgment is what humans use to inform decisions under conditions of sparse data. And so I think where we have learned more since we've written the book is how things evolve such that something like driving, arguably there's a ceiling to how far we can go in in the sense of we can imagine a world where at some point that's fully automated, we don't need any human judgment. Mm -hmm. But there's many other things where the way we do things today is not the ceiling. We can do much better. And if we think of healthcare, uh, arguably, you know, 10 years from now, we'll look back and say, wow, I can't believe that we put up with such a a very primitive uh, form of healthcare. And then the third thing in terms of since the book is that we've started to recognize different categories of AI initiatives, what I call short-term, medium-term, long-term. Short-term ones are ones where we're simply taking prediction problems that we're using predictive analytics for, and we apply AI to get a performance lift. So things like uh, at a bank, anti-money laundering, sanction screening, fraud detection, know your customer. The second category are ones that we didn't use to use predictive analytics for, we used humans for, and those ones we, that we are converting into prediction problems, so things like translation and driving and determining credit scores and replying to emails. Uh, and then there's a third category, which is rather than thinking about automating tasks, we are thinking about uh, redesigning the, the whole way that things are done, like completely autonomous 
transportation systems. The first case generally have a pretty short time to showing some results and generating an ROI for the companies that deploy them, the ones who are just replacing traditional predictive analytics. The second phase ones are longer term. They take, on average, two to five years, uh, it seems. And then the third kind are much longer term. Yeah, I think we've seen in that that an essential part of the adoption is is really rethinking the user experience, that the enterprise user experience of software is not well suited for the augmentation that comes from AIML and providing people with a better understanding and in some sense a higher level understanding before they dive into the detail has proven essential to make it in some sense usable by people, right? To kind of understand what they're getting. I like to describe it to my team as I want and I want our our users to be put into the right landscape rather than being led to the destination to understand so that the final steps can involve, to your earlier point, their judgment. What do you view as the low-hanging fruit in terms of where you see in your area of application the most impactful application of machine intelligence? Where we are with millions of users using Workday every day across thousands of customers is bringing to bear expertise uniformly across the enterprise, or at least better across the enterprise. So, you know, lots of enterprises traditionally have relied on that expert sitting in that corner, and their judgment through a combination of experience and skill is dramatically better than everybody else. And and because that expertise is not well distributed, we get optimal decisions over here, but we get lots and lots of suboptimal decisions being made everywhere else because one person can only be in so many places. By bringing the ML to all the people in those decision-making locations and uplifting their level of expertise, not all the way to the expert, but, but quite a bit higher, what we are seeing and what we're hoping to do is provide a lot more efficiency and a lot better, more optimal decision-making across the enterprise. And can you give an example of um, a one area of expertise or one decision that is being enhanced through this approach? Sure. We're launching a product called Journal Insights that is for our financials customers. And it actually looks at all of your journal entries, all the transactions that make up your business. And when you close your books, what you're looking for is mistakes for fraud. And that can take a substantial amount of time each quarter when you close your books. People will subsample that data. They'll look at subsets of the data looking. So they get a statistically significant amount of data. And then they say, okay, we're pretty good. Journal Insights allows you to do two things. The first is it is able to process it automatically as journals are created. So you never get the bad data, if you will, into the system. And the second, and probably the more intriguing one, is it is able to learn the patterns of experts. Because a lot of things that you or I might say, well, that looks a little bit off. They go, oh, no, no, no. That happens all the time, this time of year. You know, that's completely normal. How do you know that? Well, I've been doing it for 20 years, and so I know that. Well, when that person retires, that is a huge loss to the enterprise in terms of just knowing off the top of their head that this set of things that that looks like a potential problem really isn't. Uh, And vice versa. Something that we might think of as innocuous is, hey, this may be a real problem that we have to go and dig into. And so we're able to lift signal out of the noise of these thousands and thousands, millions, really, of journal entries for our largest customers and allow anybody 
who happens to be involved in closing to be able to really identify the salient points to dig into. Going back to the issue of the individual in this, what does AI and ML mean? And, and, and in reading some of the, the work you've done since Prediction Machines was published, I think we sit in a point where there's still a lot of hype and there's still a lot of concern. And it'd be super interesting for me to hear you reflect on the, maybe the concern side a little bit more. Sure. Well, I think there's various areas of concern, things like privacy, bias, mm -hmm. and what the impact will be on jobs. I would say those would be three of the big areas. With respect to privacy, it seems to me that on average, there's a trade. That, you know, obviously, AIs run on data. And so at an individual level, people need to decide what they're willing to give up of their data. And the more they give up, the more work the AI can do for them in terms of personalization. For companies, they need to make decisions on where they're going to draw the line on what data they'll use and what data they won't. And I think that often gets confused with what data they'll share with third parties. And I think the former issue is the one that really defines the relationship between the customer and the company they're exchanging data with. The second issue of who that company will then share with third parties should be, in my view, one that's very explicit, but is in some sense separate from the, uh, the company's mission, but fully transparent to the user. And then at national levels, like in other words, you know, regions like Europe has a very distinct privacy regime, and I think that has both benefited that region in some domains where people are more willing to share information because they know it's going to be treated in a more careful way versus at the same time it makes it much harder for their companies to compete. So I think privacy is really, in my view, it's a topic that used to be really just legal Privacy wonks thought it was interesting. Everyone else thought it was dull. Right, and those I agrees and your terms and conditions right. that we all agree to automatically and scroll through, right? And whereas I think privacy now is moving center stage as a strategy issue and a, an innovation policy issue at, at a national level. And we've taken a very directed approach at that. So we've built our ML system, honestly, as an opt-in, opt-out system, which is yeah. technically hard. And so customers opt-in, and it's very explicit what benefits they can expect to get by opting in what data, so highly granular decision-making around what data, and then the option to opt-out and for us to expunge the data. And then, of course, in our case, being very explicit that we don't share that data with third parties. That has been something that is kind of central to who Workday is, certainly, but uh, you know, it's gratifying in some ways to see the future come to us as people have said, this is no longer a rubber stamp. This is something that we are actively worried about. Yeah, and I think that approach that you just described, I suspect even three years ago, most customers wouldn't have really appreciated the difference between that approach and some of the approaches others are taking, whereas I think increasingly that will become the dominant approach in the sense that people are starting to really recognize how important that opting in, opting out is, and how critically important is the terms with regards to sharing with third parties. Uh, with regards to bias, I think what we're recognizing is that AI systems can amplify undesirable human bias, or they can be designed in a way to significantly reduce human bias. 
And for example, there's a great study done by a professor at University of Chicago and a couple of colleagues where they trained an AI, made, built two AIs. The first one they trained, uh, they were regarding the bail decision for right. you know, judges deciding whether or not someone's granted bail. It happens about 10 million times a year in the U.S. And so they trained the AI. The first AI they trained on judges' past decisions. And so then when they ran this AI on data that the AI had never seen, uh, the AI basically performed in a way that was indistinguishable from a human judge. The second AI they trained, and instead of training it on what the judges decided, they trained it on the actual outcomes of whether people that were granted bail fled or showed up for their hearing. Because the, the decision of bail, is it's a prediction problem, and all you're predicting is whether the person's a flight risk. is totally orthogonal to whether they're guilty. Right. And what was interesting about that second AI that was trained on actual outcomes rather than on judges' decisions, it became superhuman. It became much better than judges, and when they ran it on data I'd never seen, it was effectively able to, holding the crime rate constant, reduce the number of people that were incarcerated by 40%. And furthermore, it disproportionately reduced that for some ethnic minorities. And so, in other words, it was just a useful exercise in demonstrating then, depending on how the AIs are trained, that they can either adopt human bias or improve upon that. The meta-level point here is there's some important work being done towards demonstrating the ability of AIs to to enhance or improve upon an issue that people are right now very worried about, which is bias. And then the third one on jobs, I think this one is tricky. Everybody takes the view, one of two, what I would call extreme views. One is AIs are coming, they're going to take everyone's jobs. So, you know, great fear. And the other is AIs are going to enhance people, make them superhuman, and we'll all be better off. And I suspect that the answer will ultimately be both. It will be more of the first one in the short term, because as, as AIs move into jobs, it's very hard to tr retrain people, particularly after a particular age. And so I think there will be some potential hardship. In economics, they use the euphemistic term uh, dislocation, but I think that that can be quite, quite a significant problem. But in the longer term, there is a substantive uh, upside benefit. The key is going to be distribution, is how do we make sure that it's good for everybody and not just the people that are the beneficiaries of enhanced technology? Absolutely. And we have time for probably one or two more quick questions. Actually, Cheyenne, I would love to hear from you. You told me that you went out and got prediction machines on the very first day. What was your big takeaway? At the time that, that the book came out, there were either a lot of highly technical books for practitioners and then a lot of almost almost breathless hype books, either what I call AI eschatology, which is the destruction of the world by AI or the, the future perfect world generated by AI, and nothing that was actually just talking about the practical implications for individuals, for companies, and, right. and then this book landed. So it's a breath of fresh air. And it was a breath of fresh air because then you had developed a framework for us to think about, okay, what does this mean? As predictions get cheap, what happens next? And and right. so that allowed me at Workday to drive particular focus on what we were doing rather right. than spreading ourselves everywhere on how we could provide benefit for our customers uh, and their employees. And soaking up those pools of uncertainty and 
helping raise the the level of decision making, right? That's right. And and in some sense, because the way Workday is, which is we're both a transaction engine, people do things in Workday, and we are a data engine, people have lots of data in Workday, you know, that cycle is very explicit. Mm -hmm. Like, what is the data that went into me hiring somebody as recorded in Workday's recruiting engine? To your point, a critical issue as we talk about job loss. Like, how do I get hired? What skills do I have? And that's a decision. And and again, to your point, that decision can be biased. And so that's front and center, not just in the area of all the data we can take advantage of, but the codified decisions as represented by these transactions. So that really focused our efforts to say, hey, let's, let's really hone what we're doing here. And Ajay, can you give us a quick preview of what you're working on? What we'll maybe be talking about next time you're on the podcast? Sure. Well, first, let me just thank Cheyenne for his comments about the book. It's very gratifying when people are really you know, building things. You know, he's got a background as an entrepreneur. He's a builder. And when a builder finds our work useful, that's very gratifying to us. So thank you for that. And let me just actually make one other point here, which is that one of the things that's so gratifying to us about Workday's interest in our work is that as economists, it's great that some companies find the book useful and and figure out clever strategies to compete and make the products better. But something that we care about a lot is what's called social welfare. And that has a very specific meaning in economics. And while on the one hand this technology is likely to bring a lot of benefits to humankind, it also can cause a little some pain along the way because of job dislocation. And one of the things that is very compelling to us about Workday is effectively we think about the labor market as a matching system. And what we see in Workday is an opportunity for a first order increase in the efficiency of matches, like matching people with things that need to be done. And so I'm sure that's not the language that's used around here, but over in you know economics, this is a very sort of at a society level, as opposed to at a company level, society level, like a very important function. And as I've been going around talking about machine intelligence to various companies, I'm surprised when I mention Workday as an example, how many companies all of a sudden, you know, someone calls out from the audience, oh, you know, we use Workday too. And so it just makes me think, okay, each company, you know, is using Workday to make themselves more effective, more efficient. But at a more macro level, it's enhancing matching, which from a social welfare point of view is, is of great interest to us. So to quickly answer your point, yeah. the thing I'm working on now is this issue of power, uh, how prediction is changes in prediction are, are leading to shifts in power. Okay, great. Looking forward to it. That's all we have time for today. I want to thank you, Ajay Agrawal, Cheyenne Chakraborty, for joining us on the Workday Podcast. I'm Josh Christ. Please subscribe on iTunes or your favorite podcasting app. Thank you both very much. <laughs>